0: So this week's Parsha is Ketetse. And like I said, it is starting in chapter 21 of Devarim, of Deuteronomy, with the 10th verse. And we see how the laws, the way they're listed in the Torah, show how one thing leads to another. One thing causes another to happen. And we'll see that. Here it's a good lesson just that one thing is a really good lesson for us to understand when you go forth to war against your enemies and god your god delivers one of them into your hand and you will take his captives and you see among the captives a woman of beautiful form you desire her and you take her as wife then you shall bring her home to your house and she shall shave her head and allow her nails to grow and she shall take off the garment of her captivity and sit in your house and weep for her father and her mother for one month only after that may you go to her and become her husband so that she may become a wife to you but it shall be if you do not take pleasure in her you shall let her go wherever she wishes you must not sell her for money you must have no advantage whatsoever from her because you have violated her the man has. Okay, so we'll stop there. So this is the law concerning a captive woman in war. If a man wanted to keep her as a wife. Now it's really interesting when we think about the way that the Torah came and it was revolutionary, changing the way that things had always been accepted in societies of the nations in the societies of the nations when they would go to war of course there was a lot of raping and pillaging and, and plundering it is. and it still is that way it still is, people may consider ourselves more civilized but war is not civilized it's like whenever people go to war and we've had other sections that talk about war and laws concerning war behavior in war that for the most part, the popular opinion is that all rules are suspended. Rules of behavior are suspended and anything goes. Well, the way that the Hashem expected the people of Israel to behave was laid out in the Torah, and especially in a situation where, by and large, the attitude was anything goes he's saying no that is not acceptable you have to still pay attention to certain rules of behavior now the army of Israel was supposed to be completely consisting of Siddiquim all righteous men they were the only ones allowed to go to war they were the only ones allowed to be in the army of Israel so what is this what is this law that is called Yafet Tor? what is this law concerning this well the rabbis knew that there could be an instance where a man could weaken or there could be a woman who is desirable now this these laws are saying a lot of things one thing is that it is Saying something against marrying for superficial reasons. Because the woman is beautiful. Being attracted for those reasons. Saying something against that overall. Not just in a case of war, but overall. Marrying for the sake of passion. And we're given the example here. I mean, we're given these laws here in the context of war. There were a lot of problems with this. And so, there were safeguards put on. The woman was brought into, and the man could bring her into his house. She had to, for a month, she had to cut her nails. She had to shave her head. She could not adorn herself at all. She had to go into mourning for her mother and father. She had to try to wean herself from... The um, idols of her people. That was one of the things. So she was for a month. He was seeing her in this way. That she was not beautiful. He saw her on the battlefield. He saw her among the captives. She looked beautiful. But when he took her home. He was commanded to allow her. This period of time. That she would be. Very unattractive. And then after a month, he was allowed to take her as his wife. But the rabbis say, now this is according to the written Torah, but the rabbis say that if she did not want to be his wife, he could give her two more months. Two more months that he would not, she would not be expected to be his wife. And then after that time, if it wasn't going to work out, he was supposed to let her go. He could let her go in one month but the rabbis tell us that there were an additional 2 months were possible if she just could not bear to be his wife then he wasn't supposed to force the issue he was supposed to let her go but the the hope was with this was that she would be one of those souls and this was one of the things that was a possibility was that she would be a soul that was destined to be part of the people of Israel, that she would be one of those souls that was destined to be a righteous convert into the people of Israel, and this would be a method of, like, um, what they call rescuing or um, or uh, renewing, bringing in the sparks, and that was a possibility. And in that case she would be a righteous convert. She would be treated as though she had been born Jewish. She would be a Jewish woman completely. She would be his wife and as though she had never been anything else ever. She would be a full fledged Jewish woman. Now there was a a woman who was um a Yafet Toar, who was one of King David's wives. She was a capture she was captured in war. She was uh Ma'ka. She was a princess that David had captured in war and he married her. And she was the mother of Av Shalom. And of course we remember the story of Avshalom and how he rebelled against his father. And he wanted to even kill King David. So, here's a story from the from the midrash. So her her um, even though she had converted, her purity, her impurity had not completely departed. So this is the reason that we see, like I said, the laws placed in the order that they are. So we would have to say that even King David was in the position of uh, one who had married for passion. We're going to go on a little bit further and so that we can uh, tie these things together if a man has two wives one beloved and the other hated and they have borne him sons both the beloved and the hated and the firstborn is that of the hated one then it shall be on the day when he bequeaths to his sons that which is his property that he is not at liberty to grant the son of the beloved the birthright over the son of the hated the firstborn rather he must recognize the firstborn the son of the hated one by giving him a double portion of all his extant possessions because he is the first of his acquisitions the birthright is his if a man has a son who is disobedient and he does not hearken to the voice of his father or to the voice of his mother they will chastise him but he still will not listen to them Then his father and mother shall lay hold of him and bring him to the elders of his city and to the gate of his place. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is disobedient. He does not hearken to our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And the people of the city shall stone him so he will die. And so you will clear away the evil from your midst. And all of Israel will hear it and be afraid. And if there is a capital sin upon a man and he is executed... You will hang him upon a pole, and he will not allow his body to remain on the pole overnight, because you must bury even him on the same day. For one who remains suspended expresses an act of blasphemy, and you shall not defile the soul that God, your God, is giving you as an inheritance. Now let's go back. We just talked about the woman who the beautiful woman who is a um, who is a captive in war. And so the, the rabbis say one thing leads to another. So there here is this beautiful woman who is a, who was a captive from war and so this man marries her out of passion, not out of shame le shemayim, not out of for the sake of, the, of heaven, but out of passion. And so the rabbis say and then the passion wears off and she Would become a hated wife and from that hated wife could come a son who becomes rebellious the rebellious son so one thing this is the reason that the Torah has these things placed in the order that it has them that one thing leads to another so let's go back to King David I want to talk about this when King David had the son Av Shalom and he was um, he was rebelling against his father. David's son, Av Shalom, proclaimed himself king, and David and his men who feared for their lives had fled the capital, Jerusalem. David thought, The people will be shocked at the distress I suffer at the hands of my own son. They will blame the almighty for having dealt unfairly with me. Therefore, when I arrive at the top of the hill, I shall bow to God in front of the idol stationed there so that people will be under the impression that I am prostrating myself before the idol. They will then reason that God is punishing me for my sins. Now remember, David's love for Absalom was so intense. It was almost out of proportion. When David's counselor... Hushai heard of the king's plan he rent his coat, placed ashes on his head and voiced his protest why do you want people to think you, a righteous king bow before an idol better I should prostrate myself before an idol and they should say, David is not the tzaddik we thought and deserves this punishment than desecrate God's name by declaring God's ways are not just a righteous king was murdered by his son Hushai Contradicted, you need not worry that God's name will be desecrated. You married Maaka, the daughter of Talmay, King of Geshur, who was a Yafet Toar, a Gentile captive woman, but the Torah permits such a marriage. objected Davi it does Hushai conceded, but you fail to contemplate the order of the Parsha. HaShem placed this section of the rebellious son after Yafet To'ar to hint that in a marriage to a Yafet To'ar a rebellious son is the likely product. Therefore your suffering at the hands of your son will, on the contrary, corroborate the truth of the Torah and the justice of God's ways. David realized that Hushai was right and abandoned the thought of bowing before an image. Avshalom's rebellion caused a rift in Davi's kingdom and the death of thousands of Jews. God punished Avshalom with death for rebelling against Davi and for taking Davi's concubines. This was a sin that was forbidden and is forbidden to all people, this um, cohabiting with the father's wife. While riding on his mule, Avshalom passed under the thick branches of an oak his beautiful hair of which he was so proud became entangled in the branches meanwhile the mule trotted on leaving absalom dangling between heaven and earth when Davi's general joab heard of it he came and thrust three spears into absalom's heart and joab's men slew him Though so, absalom was a rebellious son he was rebelling against not only not only but also against Hashem himself and this is the lesson of the rebellious son it, we have the warning of not marrying for passion even though the, the law of Yoset Toar was specifically attached not just to the Jewish people but also to only to the Jewish people living in the land under the rule of a king so it does not apply now not at all does not apply at all and so during that time when the Jewish people lived in the land under a king, those laws applied but from those laws we can take, we can glean out um, lessons for all of us for Jewish people and B'nai Noah that it is a very dangerous thing for us to marry for strictly for passion that we have an obligation to be very careful about marriage because we are bringing by joining ourselves together with this person we are establishing a relationship and from that relationship come souls into the world and if this relationship is not from, from for the sake of heaven then there is a very good chance that the souls come into the world The children who are going to be raised in that home could be, fall into this category of the rebellious son. And what was the way that he, um, the way that he expressed his rebellion, we're told in the 20th verse, he doesn't hearken to his parents, he wouldn't listen to his parents, and he was a glutton and a drunkard. Now, this is another case where one thing would lead to another. He was a drunkard, and a a glutton and a drunkard. And so he cared so much. Now think about it. The parents married for passion. Not for the sake of heaven. They married for passion. So they give birth to a son who cares for what? He cares for his physical pleasure. And so if he only cares for physical pleasure is not going to care about the sake of heaven and so he is tempted to steal in order to satisfy his physical pleasures drinking and, and eating he's, he's tempted to steal and when a person steals there is a danger that they could encounter a situation in which they would ent- they would end up murdering I mean think about it one thing leading to another And so it's a very very serious thing that people bear in mind that they should marry for the sake of heaven that their homes should be a place where the children can learn the laws of Hashem so that they can learn to live their lives for the sake of heaven and then the last part we see here the last part is that a person who is executed was not supposed to be left hanging overnight And why? Because a human being is made in the image of Hashem. And so, for that, I mean, we're given a midrash where if uh, the people, there was a, a person who looked like the king and he was left, he was left hanging, he was executed and left hanging that it would be um an assault on the name of the king you know it would be uh, shame to the king And even so it's the same with a human being being left hanging because we're made in the image of the king of all the universe so we're not supposed to leave his body hanging it's also a defilement it's a, a blasphemy of Hashem as also a blood defilement against the land because the land is supposed to be for the living now there have been instances and we, we read that in the prophets where bodies were left hanging they were left hanging for reasons but that was an exception to that now let's go back for a moment and talk about this rebellious son now If anybody has any questions, you can just jump right in here. Okay? It was very difficult for all of the conditions to be met for a rebellious son to actually be executed. And again, it was only in Eretz Israel. And the child had to have two parents, two living parents, and both of the parents had to be in good health. They couldn't be blind or lame or or deaf. Neither one of them. They had to be in good health so that the child had every advantage to learn properly in his home. He had to be over the age of thirteen. Had to be between thirteen. Oh, well, it says thirteen and thirteen years and and uh, three months. <coughs> He had to be a teenager. He had to be over the age of bar mitzvah, and when the parents took him to the bait den to accuse him of being a rebellious son, they both had to go. They both had to accuse him together. So they had to be in agreement. Couldn't just be the father is a mean guy and he drags this this kid off, and the mother is screaming, "How can you do that to my son?" No, it had to be both parents in agreement that this was a truly rebellious son and one of the reasons that the Torah gave this option that this this son could be executed like this was to prevent him from in the future committing more serious crimes than gluttony and drunkenness it started out as gluttony and drunkenness but oh absolutely David did not want absolutely uh, of Shalom killed he didn't he was a rebellious son that it was all. it was like it was taken out of his hands and David was it from it looks like and even it says we're told this that David was an overly lenient father he was not a father who chastised his son and they and, and it showed I mean he had so much trouble with his children because he did not punish them. They let they thought they could do whatever they wanted to do. And they just ran wild and they even rebelled against him. They plotted against each other. It was it was just a mess. And that was because he was not a strict father. And being a strict father doesn't mean being a harsh a reasonable father either or an abusive father there's a big difference between those two things and david was overly lenient with his children so that was the result of Shalom. rebelling was his, was the result and he loved avshalom so much i mean he was like grooming avshalom to be his successor he wanted him to be his successor and another thing that the sages say about that is that this came after his, it, the incident with Sheva, and so when Hashem, the punishment was that he would raise up evil out of his own house that it was from the, the mother who was the foreign captive not from uh, like Batsheba not from her child because she was a Jewish woman and so this was what the sages say that Hashem declared let the son of a foreign woman repay him for sinning with a Jewish woman and as we said Maaka was a princess but she had not completely um, overcome the impurity now it's sometimes very difficult for us to completely understand the whole story of David and Bathsheba and their child their first child died you remember the story how their first child died but yet there was a blessing in that relationship I mean, I would think and I often wondered why it was that it wasn't Abigail who would be the mother of the heir but Abigail's son he was not a rebellious son he was one of the tzaddikim I can't even remember his name right now but I remember he was one of the tzaddikim who was said by the sages was so righteous that he went alive into Gan Aden but the son of Bathsheba was Shlomo was Solomon and he was destined to build the temple and even though on the surface too it looks as though that that relationship between David and Bathsheba was based on passion there was still more there and there was less to overcome because she was not um, she was not a woman who was raised in a house of idolatry like Maaka was there was a lot to overcome with this Okay, does anybody have a comment or a question about this it's a real subject when we start talking about homes and marriage and children I mean we have there's a lot to think about there a lot of lessons to learn in how we raise our children and it's hard to strike the balance a lot of times of, of discipline but we see that the consequence of being too lenient is very it's, it's scary it's really scary these souls come into the world for us to be responsible and it's scary when we think about failing in that and you're absolutely right how a child is conceived makes a difference it makes all the difference And that goes along with the idea about why we marry the person we marry a lot of times you ask somebody and after the the passion has worn off they can't even remember why they wanted to marry that person have you ever noticed that how after that glow is gone you'll ask them well why did you ever want to marry them and they'll say I don't even know anymore I don't even remember it's sad. It's really sad and it shows how how driving, you know, how how strong it is that passion drives us. I know I was I was watching my dad one time when he was um just recently when he was helping my mother from the wheelchair to the chair and he was holding her. I mean, it it is a lot of work and it's been, it's been really difficult taking care of my mother now that she is sick and she can't walk she can't get up and do things for herself but I was watching my dad one day as he was helping her and I just saw this tenderness there this love there this is absolutely not passion it is not based in passion This is deep, real, genuine love. And after over 50 years, I see this with my parents. And, I mean, it it touched me so deeply just to watch that. And I could see the foundation that they made their home on. And I thank Hashem that this was the home I came from. That this was a strong foundation. That they loved each other. That they loved Hashem, that they taught me from the time I was born, literally, from the time I was born, to love God with all of my heart. And I really, I'm so grateful that I come from a home like that because, you know, when I was growing up, it sounded like, oh, well, stick in the mud, and there's nothing exciting about that. And You see TV shows about, it seemed like what was exciting was trouble. You know, that was what was exciting. But after I got older, I realized, I'll look at other families too, where the kids, every single one of the kids is just gold, just fantastic people. Because they come from this home where the parents were loving to each other. They loved Hashem with all their heart. They raised the kids like this. There's so it's, it makes such a difference in the world absolutely makes such a difference and then you see other families that are just every single one of these people is a, it's a disaster on legs and the family is a disaster the home is a disaster and it's just one problem after another arranged marriage has a better track record <laughs> you know actually it's funny but it's true when we read the story of Isaac and Rivka, um, Isaac and Rebecca, that was an arranged marriage, and so when she first came, they didn't even know each other, and their love developed. You know, it developed during the marriage, and um, and it's really a beautiful picture of when she had not had children. And they, and they stood across from each other and they each prayed that she would, get, she would conceive that she would have a child they were praying together and I mean I, I just think about that and I think this is a partnership Abraham and Sarah they were partners they were real partners in their work in the world that their souls came in the world to do they were real partners and this is what it means, help me. That we're supposed to help each other in this way that we see, it's not just materially. It's not just having fun together. It's not just all these things that people talk about. That we we uh, have our incomes and we get our house and we furnish it and we do all these things. It's not that. The highest thing is that these two people come together For their spiritual work in the world, they understood what was expected of them in their lives and in their marriages. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And when we can understand that, and I mean, I'm not saying that making a living and having a home and all those things aren't important. They are. They are important. And it's good if we work together. When we're married and we work together for those things. That's good. But if we can recognize that there's something higher than that. That there's something more important than that. Then that infuses everything that we do. It infuses how we raise our children. How we teach them. All of this. What they hear from us. It infuses that. And when the husband and wife are in agreement and they're walking together in agreement and they're doing this work what, however it manifests however it ex- is expressed in the world I think that it really shows in the children I really do and a lot of times you'll see people who come from these terrible confused and ter- homes I mean though we have terrible confused lives and you can look back at their families, at their parents, and their parents were had all kinds of problems, you know. It's not every time, it's not necessarily a rule, but the world today really paints a different picture and it's showing in the demise of so many marriages and families. And that's very, very true. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately we we see so many things like soap opera stuff where it's more interesting if you're having problems all the time it's a lot more interesting than if you're just flowing together and you have peace in your home that's not that doesn't make an exciting soap opera but it is more pleasing to Hashem when we can bring the peace of heaven down into the world in our homes and I think that this is an ideal that he created marriage for. And I'll tell you something. I know now that I'm an adult that my parents had disagreements. But the whole time I grew up, I don't remember ever hearing them have a fight. Ever. And so I thought they never did. I think I said that one time to one of my teachers, and she said, Oh, everybody fights. You just. I never heard it. And so they really did and i remember they protected me i lived a real sheltered life i saw my teacher's family in um, israel when you would go to his home there were certain things that it would be in the news or it would be you know something going on and he was like Shh. he couldn't talk about it in front of his children there were certain subjects you could not talk about in front of his children at all he wouldn't allow it. And I really had to admire that, that he was so sensitive to protecting his children and what they were exposed to, that he would control that in in his home. So, uh, and I realized that basically my parents did, did the same thing with us growing up. So... um I thought about that, and I thought, wow, you know, I don't think I was as careful raising my kids. And, And I'm sorry that I wasn't. And I look at my daughter raising her daughters now, and she seems to be trying to protect them in a similar way, that they're not allowed to watch certain shows, that they're not allowed to hear certain things. She watches who they play with. And I told her that I really admire that, that she's protecting her children like that. So, anyway, that's kind of a, but I think this is an important subject and something that we have to uh, think about when we're studying Torah, especially that we can realize that the answers, so many times we don't realize this, that the answers of interpersonal relationships are found in the Torah. And right here in this Parsha, even though what it's saying in the written verses is talking about a woman captured in war, we can understand from that the danger of marriage for the sake, for the wrong reasons. Marriage for, ah oh, she's beautiful, or, oh, I like the way he, he seems so cool, or, ooh he has a nice car, or, you know, something superficial like that and you'll hear these things you know you'll hear these things and people will get married for silly reasons so or date and dating leads to marriage and that's something that um, when I was growing up I heard that all the time don't date somebody that you don't want to marry because You could fall in love with that person and then it's a problem because you can't marry that person so anyway you're right the world does paint a completely different picture and the world especially here in the West we have this idea of passion of being in love and all these things as being the most important thing and really the preferable thing is that the love develops after marriage so that it can be a very strong relationship that it's not based on superficial things it's not based on things that are going to fade beauty fades how are you going to feel about her when she's not so beautiful how are you going to feel about him when he's not so um, attractive what if he loses his hair or whatever, how are you to feel? So people don't think about that. So do you see that how one thing leads to another? That this first part of the parsha is laid out like that, and we get this in several areas of the parsha oath that we're reading. How one sin you know and if you do this then this could happen and then if you do this this could happen and it just kind of rolls into the next thing as being a consequence then you're going to have to deal with this so so now we're on chapter 22 verse 1 you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep go astray and hold yourself back from them rather you must bring them back to your brother But if your brother is not near to you, or you do not know him, you must take it to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother inquires after it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do so with his donkey, you shall do so with his garment, and you shall do so with any lost object of your brother's that he has lost, and it comes into your hands. It shall not be in your power to hold yourself back. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox lying on the way and seek to hold yourself back from them. Rather, you shall raise them up with him. Now, this is about lost, you know, having a lost and found. That we're supposed to, if we find lost property, that we're supposed to restore it to the person that it belongs to. So, at one time, during the time when the temple stood, there was a place where things were brought, like a lost and found. There was a place where uh, things were posted. Something had been lost, something had been found, so that people could have those things returned to them. We're not supposed to keep things that we lose, that are, I mean, that we find that is considered theft and then the next thing that it talks about is if you see a person on the way who is loading his uh, donkey or unloading his donkey you're not supposed to just walk by Now, the way the Torah says it is, you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox lying in the way and seek to hold yourself back from them. You shall raise them up with him. Now, what this is talking about is loading and unloading. If a person was walking along and saw somebody trying to load or unload a donkey or an ox, that he was was required to help him. Now if he had some he saw one was being unloaded and one was being loaded, he was supposed to help the person who was unloading first before he would help the person loading. Now why do you think that would be? Exactly, It is a kindness to an animal. And so, the next part of the laws that we're going to be talking about is going to be talking about other areas of kindness to animals. But before we get to that, the the fifth verse says, No male article shall be on a woman, and a man shall not clothe himself in a woman's garment. For whoever does these things is abomination to God your God. Now notice this, I pointed this out I think another time that a lot of times we have a tendency to say oh well it's just the act that's abomination not the person. That's not what the Torah says. It doesn't say the act is abomination. It says whoever does these things is abomination. The person is abomination because he is defined by his actions. So, a person who is a transvestite is an abomination a person who is a homosexual is an abomination because these things are abominable to Hashem the person who does these things is himself called by the Torah abomination sometimes we have a hard time with that because we have these politically correct ideas that we hear all the time and we say oh no you're not supposed to hate the sinner just the sin that's not what the Torah says the Torah says the person himself is an abomination to God because he if a person steals what is he? he's a thief if a person kills what is he? he's a murderer he is defined by his action right it is it is and again there are reasons I mean it it seems to be out of place it's between these things about um, kindness to animals it's stuck in here it's one verse stuck between um, the verses about loading and unloading a donkey and then about sending the mother bird away so it's like a list of laws, and right here is six. This one. Now, from this verse, the sages have ordained that a man may not pluck out white hairs, he can't dye his hair because that is effeminate. A woman is not supposed to. Wear weaponry because that is masculine, those are things that are ordinarily carried by men, and so this is something that the sages speak of. So there's supposed to be a, a, a distinct separation between the sexes. or writing something? Oh. Are there women in the IDF who wear weaponry? Yes, there are. There are women who carry guns. And if they're going to be in the army, they have to carry guns. Now, the halakha is that in a time when the nation of Israel is at uh, in danger in a danger of being wiped out everybody goes to the army that is the decision of the sages there is a disagreement about whether women should be in the army but at a time when Israel is at war for her, for her existence so this is what we can argue That this is a time when Israel is at war for her existence. And so, women are in the army, and women carry guns, and women teach even how to, um, they teach tanks and, and armory and all kinds of things. Which is kind of, I mean, I don't know, but the Torah, the sages of the Torah, said that women are not supposed to carry weaponry because it is the garments of men. Now, that is one of those sex areas where there is disagreement. And if we look at how the the armies of Israel during biblical times were formed, it was always only men. So, I don't know, my own daughter was in the army and my my husband then was very proud of her and she she did a good job in the army and I am proud of her but I have mixed feelings about it because I also think that that girls get into a lot of problems in the army that there are a lot of situations in, that are immodest that they can't help that they get into and they can't help it that, and um And there were a lot of incidents. A lot of girls got into a lot of trouble. And um, so it's not a good situation. I really don't think that it's a good idea for girls to go into the Army. For one thing, they're going straight from their home to the Army. And so they don't have a lot of experience in the world yet. And their first experience out in the world being this really intense military experience. it's it's a hard thing so you just hope and pray that you raise them well enough to have a moral standard that they won't fall into the traps that are out there because the army I mean every army but including the IDF is really a very it has can be a very immoral place and there are religious regiments in the IDS. And that's a good thing. But there are for the most part it it can be pretty pretty secular and immoral. And girls get into those regiments and it's difficult. Right. Um, if you think about it in that way about separating things, it can be, yeah. They're not doing things to defy Hashem's ways. Perhaps the verse is speaking to a person who is seeking to follow Hashem's ways by being masculine and or feminine as, as an act of rebellion. Right. This particularly, I mean, like, the, the Peshat, the simplest way to interpret these, this verse is talking about being a transvestite. Uh, being a transvestite is, I mean, if you if you hear these people talk about what drives them, what drives a man to want to dress like a woman, it's something broken inside them. It's not they they've got something wrong, and so uh, it's definitely. I mean, it, they'll talk, and even though most of them aren't homosexual. They talk in a similar way. You know what I'm saying? It's still something there that is is just not whole, it's not it's not healthy. And it is an act of rebellion. Exactly. That is exactly what it's saying. And you'll hear people say that. I mean these people who will go and to the extreme have a sex change they're saying he made a mistake when he made me and actually what they don't understand Shem didn't make a mistake at all he gave them a very very difficult challenge for their soul a challenge for them to be able to live in a way that he made them in that body that he made for them and to fulfill and to walk in the role that is accepted that he said is the right way to walk, even though it's difficult and so uh, that's a challenge it's a real challenge and if they can't, like homosexuals if they can't feel attraction for opposite sex then the challenge is to live their lives celibate and this way they're able to I mean that would be that would be very difficult, but in that way they're able to honor Hashem with their lives. You know, they don't have to get married. They don't have to look for somebody to be their soulmate. They don't have to. It's difficult to live alone. But sometimes that's what Hashem that's the challenge he's giving them. And you'll hear all kinds of sappy things from people of, you know, trying to rewrite the Torah to accommodate their own deviance. When the Torah says what it says. It's all about choices. But some have... That's right. Some have a lot harder choice to make. And just like just like what you're saying. For some people, refraining from sin, certain sin, is a lot harder than it is for other people. For some people, they have no temptation at all in some areas. None at all. But for others, it's very, very hard. And so if that person that it's very very hard for them to resist that temptation succeeds in resisting it if he has accomplished something a lot greater than the person who isn't tempted at all you know I mean think about it that's really it's really true so these souls come into the world with a real hard very very hard challenge and if they can make it through I mean, think about it. I mean, if they can make it through that challenge, and they can succeed, they're really rectifying their soul. I mean, there's a lot... If they come into the world with that, it means that they have a lot to rectify, a lot to fix. And if they can succeed, I mean, it's, it's tremendous. It's like... um going to university and getting a doctorate rather than going to kindergarten and getting your little certificate it's a world of difference and all the times that we're studying the Torah for each thing that we're studying we should see that that everything that we're being told everything that we're being taught is helping us to see how we can rectify our souls because that's the challenge we all have We just each of us has something different that we have to do and here with this it's about relationships now the next verse if a mother's nest happens to be before you on the way in an, any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother is sitting upon her young, upon the eggs, he shall not take the mother with the young. He shall send the mother bird away free, so that the young you may take for yourself. If you do this, it will be well for you. You will live long. So that's a whole other thing. Sending the mother bird away. Now, the simplest way for us to see that is it seems as though this is this is, and it's not we shouldn't make a mistake of thinking that this is just for the sake of the bird that God is saying this he did not make this, Torah, this law of the Torah just for the sake of the bird otherwise he would have said don't kill any birds it's not for the sake of the bird it's for the sake of our souls that he said this so that our souls will be sensitive to the feelings of this mother. The mother bird. Of the mother cow. that we don't kill the cow and the calf on the same day. That we're supposed to be sensitive to this. Even if these animals had no feelings whatsoever. We're supposed to be sensitive as though they are. It's like when we say a bracha we say the bracha on the wine before we say the bracha on the bread and we cover the bread so that it should not have its feelings hurt does that bread have feelings of course not it doesn't have feelings but it's for us to be sensitive and so this is the same thing here when we find this bird and we want to take the eggs from the bird we're not supposed to take say right in front of the bird here I'm going to take these eggs and oh I think I'm going to have chicken with it so here I'm taking you two and I'm going to um, make fried chicken so I'm just going to roll you in the eggs no that's not the way we're going to do it no 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 <laughs> he wants us to be sensitive so the Zohar has, um, has a midrash about this Driven from its nest, the mother bird flies restlessly over the hills and valleys. It cries bitterly and despairingly over the separation from its children. The angel appointed over this species of bird appears before the heavenly throne and reproaches Hashem. Why have you, who are compassionate in all your ways, ordered this in your Torah? The angels appointed over the other species of birds take up the call, in turn, complaining why the mother bird of their species should suffer the self-same bitter fate. Then Hashem turns to all the heavenly hosts and reprimands them. You witness how the angels in charge of birds speak up for their charges. Why then do none of you voice your concern about my sons and the Shekhinah, both of whom are in exile? The Shekhinah is separated from its nest the Beit HaMikdash in Jerusalem, and my sons, the fledglings, dwell among Gentiles. Is there none among you to arouse my compassion and defend them? The Almighty then cries out, For my own sake, for my own sake will I do it, for why should my name be profaned? And this is in Isaiah 48.11. The plaintive cry evokes heavenly mercy, for the plight of the Jewish people so we see this even that we see this in this verse that, that it's like a, a parable of the Shechina flying away from her nest in Yerushalayim and the fledglings the, the little young ones are the Jewish people that are being taken and so Hashem is saying here we have the Torah we have the, the mitzvah in the Torah about this and none of you in heaven, he's talking to the angels none of you are crying over this here you are crying over the bird but even even during the time when the Beit Migdash was standing it was saying the mitzvah at the very end was saying that you would live so there's another benefit even while the Beda Magdash was standing we weren't in exile there's a certain demonic evil agent that roams the air and it shoots like an arrow and therefore there's a verse that refers to it in Tehillim one five says do not be afraid of the terror of the night nor of the arrow that flies by day and this is like the this evil agent and how are we protected from it by fulfilling the mitzvah of sending away the mother bird so we're protected from this evil agent and this is how it says and you will have long life this is one of the mitzvot that says you will have long life and another one is what it has to do with the very first part of our parsha. Uh, another one that promises long life is honor your father and mother that you will have long life it's interesting how it has to do with these uh, parent and child relationships and then we have this thing about the mother bird uh, which is another parent and child relationship connected with having long life isn't that kind of interesting and you're right Glenn there's a lot about separation here that we don't have the the mother and the the fledglings together or uh, the chicks and um, and in a minute we're going to be talking about not plowing together and not having shotness the wool and the linen together so we're on verse 8 when you build a new house you shall make a guardrail for your roof and you shall not bring blood guilt upon your house if anyone falling should fall from there so if you build a house now this is only if you build a house with a roof that can be used before people going up there i mean if you have a gabled roof or something like that people aren't going to be using the roof for a living area and so it does not apply. This was only applicable on flat roofs where people would go and they would sometimes use it for living space. In Jerusalem a lot of times you'll see people during Sukkot they'll put the Sukkah on the roof Well, on a roof like that where people are going to go and and uh, have living space, they're going to eat there, they're going to sleep there, whatever, you're required to put up a fence around it to keep a person from um, falling. And from this also, we we glean that you have to ensure that your property is does not have dangerous objects on it, like a broken ladder or something like this. That a person could get hurt on. You're supposed to try to ensure that your property does not have something on it that could cause injury. Even though a person could say, well, if they were, they were meant to be injured, they would be injured anyway. No, you can't be the cause. You don't want to be the cause of that injury. The agent of that injury. do not sow your vineyard with spe- with species that exclude each other lest the increase or even the seed and the yield of the vineyard be forfeited as sanctified so you're not supposed to mix these things together this is Zohar mentioned this verse, it sounds like building a new temple after the Shekhinah left in the verse before no, the Zohar what the Zohar was talking about that was after the temple had been destroyed and that's why Hashem was saying to the heavenly host that they weren't coming to him in the same manner bemoaning the Shechina as they were as these angels over the birds were doing So let's just go uh, uh, on a little bit further. Do not sew the vineyard together and do not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Do not clothe yourself with shaknas, wool, and linen together. Make yourself twisted threads on four corners of your garment with which to cover yourself. Okay. So here we can see that these things, like I was talking about, that one verse leads into the other. So we had talked about how the, um, the captive woman could become the hated wife and they could have a son who was rebellious and could commit a capital crime. And then there is the prohibition against leaving the corpse hanging. Then we continue with sending away the mother bird and if one fulfills this mitzvah then he will merit to own a house in which he can fulfill the mitzvah of making a fence and in turn he will merit a vineyard in which he can fulfill the mitzvah of not mixing species the fulfillment of that mitzvah can cause him to own a stable of a donkey and oxen with which he can fulfill the mitzvah of not harnessing them together and further on, the Parsha warns against mixing wool and linen. And if he performs this mitzvah, he will merit to wear tzitzit on a beautiful garment. He will have a beautiful garment, which he can attach the tzitzit. So you can see how the way that the Parsha is the verses are listed, it shows how one thing can lead to the other. And if you do this, and in the first part, it was warning you, if you do this, then this bad thing will happen, and then this thing could happen. And here, when we talk about sending away the mother bird, it's nice things. If you will send away the mother bird, then you'll merit to have a house on which you'll have a fence. You can put a fence on the roof. And if you do that, then you'll marry, and then it goes on like that. So it's really interesting how the, the order of the verses are listed. So now we're going to talk about a little bit more about marriage. If a man takes himself a wife, and he comes to her and hates her, and he institutes proceedings against her, and brings forth an evil name upon her, and says, I have taken myself this woman and came near to her, but I did not find any evidence of virginity for her. And the father of the girl and her mother take action in the matter and bring the girl's virginity to light before the elders of the city in court. And the father of the girl says to the elders, I have given my daughter to this man as a wife, and now he hates her. And so he has instituted proceedings against her as follows. I did not find any evidence of virginity for her. And here are the proofs of my daughter's virginity. And they spread out that which covered the truth before the elders of the city. The elders of the city shall take the man and chastise him, and they shall fine him one hundred pieces of silver and give them to the father of the girl, because he has brought forth an evil name upon a virgin of Israel. But she shall remain his wife, he no longer has the authority to send her away as long as he lives. But if this thing was true, no evidence of virginity was found for the girl, then they shall bring out the girl to the gate of her father's house, and the people of the city shall stone her with stones so that she dies, because she has committed a shameful act in Israel to commit lewdness in her father's house. You must clear away the evil from your midst. Now this is um, something that was done in Israel, where there was a um, proof of the girl's virginity that the parents would keep, but it's not it's not done anymore, and I it's um, you understand what it's talking about. if a man is found cohabiting with a woman married to another man both of them shall die the man cohabiting with the woman and also the woman you shall clear away evil from Israel now this is adultery if a man is cohabiting with a married woman that's adultery and so both people would would be killed if a virgin girl is betrothed to a man and a man finds her in a city and cohabits with her then they shall bring them out to the gate of the city and stone them with stones so they die the girl by reason of evidence that she did not cry out in the city and the man by reason of evidence that he violated his neighbor's wife you shall clear away the evil from your midst now the way that this the girl was considered married if she had gone through the betrothal and this was a whole ceremony of um, that she's promised to this other man and during biblical times they would perform this ceremony like a year before the actual marriage but she was considered married now the way it's done is it's done um, right at the time of the wedding it's right before the wedding they do the betrothal ceremony. So we don't have this anymore about a girl being betrothed like this. It, but if the man comes upon the betrothed girl and, and like I said, it's a whole ceremony and there is a written document of betrothal. Just like when a, when people get married, there's a written um, document of marriage called ketubah well, there's a written document of betrothal. So, if they decide they do not want to get married, if the man decides he does not want to marry her in at all, and they already have this written document of betrothal, he has to actually divorce her. He has to give her a get. That's why now we don't do it that way. We do it at the same time as the wedding so that people don't have to go through that whole thing if they break the engagement we all have those engagements anymore like they did in biblical times but if the man comes upon the betrothed girl in the field and the man seizes her and cohabits with her then only the man who cohabited with her shall die and to the girl you shall do nothing whatsoever no capital sin attaches to her for as if a man rises up against her, his neighbor and murders him so is this incident and what would be we consider this what is rape considered think about the laws of Noah what is rape considered this is a capital crime it's considered theft it falls under the category of theft. For if, or he came upon her in the field, even if the betrothed girl had cried out and there was no one to rescue her, if a man finds a virgin who is not yet betrothed and he lays hold of her and cohabits with her, and they are and they are found, then the man cohabiting with her shall give the girl's father fifty pieces of silver, but she must become his wife because he has violated her he does not have the authority to send her away as long as he lives but so this gets very very involved there were certain relationships that were totally forbidden and the and the children who would be born of those relationships were called Mumserim now now for a person to be in the category of it's in English it's translated bastard but for a person to be in that category is not the same as people think of it in the West not the same not just an unmarried girl who has a baby. It's not that simple. It was the result of a forbidden relationship, like an incestuous relationship. A relationship of of two people who were forbidden to get married, could not get married. So a person that was a mom's heir could marry another mom's heir, but not a person who was not a regular Jewish person they could marry a convert or another mom's heir. The child born from a forbidden marriage by Torah is considered now the two words. Mu, uh, it mum there comes from two words, mum, which is an injury or a defect, and there or zar, is strange. So it's a defect. The person who is the the result of this relationship is considered the sin made flesh. So it's a defect know that in our politically correct thinking that a lot of times we have a problem with that but this is according to Torah law now another thing that was very interesting Jews were forbidden to marry certain certain people. They can marry converts, of course. But a man who cannot beget children because his reproductive organs are injured or removed by human intervention cannot marry somebody who was born Jewish. The Torah pro, pro, provi- um, forbids sterilization but if there was you know it was because of some sickness or because he was um, because he was born with a congenital problem then he does not fall into that category this is this is the category of human intervention like a person who would be called a, a eunuch because of human intervention, then he could not marry a person who was born Jewish. He could marry a ger, a convert, but not someone who was born Jewish. No man may marry his father's wife, and he also must not uncover his father's garb. One who was injured by crushing of testicles or one with manip- with a um mutilated shall not enter into the assembly of God. And this is what I was talking about um there with the with the it says marriage but also how does a person who is converting he marries into the assembly of God a mamzer shall not enter the assembly of God even the 10th generation of his shall not enter into the assembly of God and what this is speaking of is marrying you can't marry somebody who is born Jewish And Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the assembly of God even the tenth generation of theirs shall not enter into the assembly of God forever so what would happen is they could convert but then they would have to marry somebody who was also a convert to the certain generation and then they could those could marry born Jews because they did not come to meet you with bread and water on the way, and they went from when you went from its rhyme, and they hired Bilem son of Beor from Batur Aram Naharaim to curse you. Now, nowadays, because we don't, are they are they still allowed in this? Yes, this is talking about marriage now the thing is what I was going to say as we read all of these things that this one's not allowed in that one's not allowed in now of course when we're talking about nationalities like this because after there's been so much um, mixing up of the nations we don't know who the who the Ammonites or the Moabites or the Mitzrites who they are anymore we don't know anymore and so this is not effective today but we still study it. But the person who is Mamzer that is still absolutely in effect. And so we had like with the the people from these countries like Russia and so on who came to Israel this was a concern of the rabbis who came from Ethiopia who came from like the people who are the um Anusim. the concern of the rabbis is there could have been mamzerim people would not know there could have been forbidden relationships there could be people who who knows and so the easiest thing for us to do is to consider that they all have to convert just to wipe the slate clean and they get upset They, I mean they consider it an insult they don't want to be considered convert they consider it an insult and so they don't realize that what the rabbis are doing is because of all these laws here where it says these people can't enter the assembly of Hashem and these people can't what it's talking about is entering the assembly of Hashem by marrying Jewish people who are born Jewish that's how they enter the assembly it's not talking about going to the synagogue it's talking about coming into the people through marriage And so now we can't object to certain nationalities because we don't know who they are, but we still have to be careful of the, of the status of Mumser. We have to be careful of that. And those people who are considered Mumser are like, and, and especially when we don't know, you know, it, it's a problem. So that's why, in a lot of cases, the rabbi said, you know what? Convert. Just convert. We'll consider that you're not Jewish at all, and that your family wasn't Jewish at all. You just start out with a clean slate, and then that's it. And God, your God, would not hearken to Bilaam, but God, your God, turned the curse into a blessing for you, because God, your God, loved you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. Do not reject the Edomite entirely because he is your brother. Do not reject the Mitzrite entirely because you are a stranger in his land. Of the children that were born to them, the third generation may enter into the assembly of God. So what does this mean? It means when they come and they convert, these people convert. They can marry other converts their children can marry other converts and then their grandchildren which would be the third generation can marry people who are born Jews they enter into the congregation the assembly of Israel of the children that are born to them the third generation see the third generation that's the grandchildren can enter the assembly of God When you go out as a camp against your enemy, keep away from every evil thing. If there is among you a man who is unclean by a nocturnal occurrence, you shall go forth outside the camp and not come within the camp. Only at the turn toward evening shall he bathe himself in water when the sun has set. He shall come within the camp. He shall have a place outside the camp. To that place you shall go out. And you shall have a trowel in your equipment, so that when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and cover over that which you leave behind. For God, your God, walks in the midst of your camp to rescue you and to deliver you up your enemies before you. So your camp shall be a holy thing, so that he may see no nakedness in you and restrain himself from accompanying you. You must not hand over to his master a slave who has taken refuge with you from his master. So this is like if a Canaanite slave came running into Israel from outside. That they were supposed to be allowed to convert. They were not supposed to be handed back to the master. You shall settle down with you. He shall settle down with you in your midst. In the place that he will choose. Within one of your gates. Where he feels best you must not grieve him but so he was supposed to be accepted as a convert there shall be none dedicated to lewdness among the daughters of Israel and there shall be none dedicated to lewdness among the sons of Israel you must not bring a harlot's wage or the price of a dog into the house of God your God for any pledge because both of these are an abomination to God so this is there was supposed to be no No harlotry in Israel. You must not pay your brother any interest. Be it interest in money or interest in food. No interest at all. Nothing that could be construed in any way as interest. You may pay interest to the stranger. But to your brother you must not pay interest so that God your God may bless you in everything to which you put your hand in the land to which you are coming to take possession of it if you make a vow to God your God do not put off paying it for God your God will demand it of you and sin will cling to you if you refrain from making vows no sin will cling to you so it's always good to be careful to what you say vows and oaths what you say and even how you're living your life what you're committing yourself to so that you do not inadvertently or overtly um, break a vow but that which your lips have uttered you must keep and carry out according to that which you vowed as a consecration to God that you spoke with your mouth When you come to your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat grapes as you desired until you have your fill, but you must not put any in your vessel. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck ears with your hand, but you must not swing a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So if you were to be walking in someone's vineyard or in their grain, you could just eat what you wanted to right there, but you couldn't just, you know, load up your basket and take it home when a man takes himself a wife and marries her then it shall be if she has not found favor in his eyes because he found her a moral nakedness justifying legal proceedings and writes her a bill of divorce and places it in her hand and thus dismisses her from his house and she departs from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and then the latter man hates her and writes a bill of divorce and places it in her hand and thus dismisses her from his house, or if the latter man who took her for himself as a wife dies, then the first husband who dismisses her shall not have the authority to take her for himself again to become his wife. Since she has caused by him was caused by him to cease being pure for him, for this is an abominable thing before God, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that God your God is giving you as an inheritance. So here is is a very interesting thing that a lot of times people don't think about that once people have divorced and this woman remarries she can never marry that first husband again ever if she doesn't remarry she's never you know she can go back to him but if she gets married again she can never go back to her first husband it's considered a, it's considered a sin upon the land upon the land of Israel but it was considered one of those things that the nations did that was considered a vile thing an abominable thing. One of those things was listed with those things that the the nations were spewed out of the land for. So this is something that uh, she could not do, or he could not do, was take her back after he had divorced her like that, and she had married someone else. We're kind of running out of time, so I'm kind of trying to hurry up a little bit. Just set, if you have a question just stop me when a man takes himself a new wife he shall not go out into the army and shall not be subjected to anything associated with it he shall remain free for his home for one year and make his wife happy that he has taken himself so this is we had um, covered this before about people who were exempt from army service and, it, and a man taking a wife was one of those things and so it's being reiterated here that this is how important it is that marriage be established so for one year a man was supposed to stay with his wife he wasn't supposed to go to the army wasn't go to supposed to go to the army at all for a whole year a lower or upper millstone must not be taken as security for one who does that takes a life as security. So a person in Israel. You could not take a person's tools. Of his livelihood. As a security. Or a debt. You couldn't do that. Because if they, you did that. Then he would not be able to make a living. He would never be able to pay his debt. You know. He would be. It would cause him to essentially. Um be in danger of dying because he had no way of making a living so how the Torah phrases this is you're taking a life as a security and you're forbidden to do that if a man is found stealing a person from among his brothers now think about this we have had these laws about theft if a person stole a cow if he stole a sheep he had to pay back so many times over but here's a different law if a man is found stealing a person now this is kidnapping from among his brothers of the sons of Israel and he has availed himself of his services and has sold him then this thief shall die and you shall clear away the evil from your midst now remember the story of Joseph when he was sold by his brothers into slavery they committed a capital crime so we have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur coming up on Yom Kippur part of liturgy is about is called the ten martyrs and this was here's the story and here's one of the reasons why the sages have said we're not supposed to teach Torah to the nations because of this story The noblemen of Rome, noblemen of Rome, the emperor of Rome, wanted the Torah, the sages to teach him the Torah. And so he came to this verse: If a man is found stealing a person from among his brothers, and he, and he asked them, "What is the penalty for this?" and they said, "Death," and he said, "Well, your forefathers of your tribes sold Joseph into slavery; were they killed?" and they said no and so he says well then I decree that you have to be killed and so these they petitioned there were ten they petitioned heaven about this if this was the correct verdict and they received from heaven that this was that they were supposed to give their lives They were supposed to die. Let me see here. Just a second. In a nutshell, (coughs) the ten of them all died, and they died very. They died very violent deaths. And it was based on this verse. Just a second. Tell you the story a little bit better than this. It was at the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt from 132 to 135. And among the ten martyrs was um, was Rabbi Akiva. And they, all of them, like I said, Rabbi Akiva was one of them. And he died by being wrapped in the Torah scroll and, and he was burned. But they received from their prayers and that the verdict was that they had to lay down their lives. And each one of them, according to our, our tradition, was a reincarnation of one of the brothers so that the sin of selling Joseph was paid for all the centuries later was paid for by the ten martyrs and each, each Yom Kippur we do read about this this is a part of the liturgy and, but I want us to understand something that this is also what it's talking about in the laws of Noah, when it talks about theft being a capital crime, this is the theft that is a capital crime. stealing a person. It's not stealing an object. It's stealing a person. That is the capital crime. Stealing an object is um, punished by, like, fining. That you, if you, if you steal one, you have to pay back five. You know, it's a fine. you have the ability to pay it back with money or pay it back with things but you don't pay it back with your life you don't pay it back with having your hand cut off or something like this and sometimes in as you look at laws in other countries they will have this kind of this kind of I mean I remember reading about Some of the things that happened in medieval times in in England and and, uh, other European countries. The way they executed law was just horrendous. I mean, cutting off hands and cutting off heads and stuff for things that were not capital offenses was just awful. Because they didn't understand the law. It was so extreme, and now we have the opposite well we do not understand law we don't understand how it's supposed to be executed we don't understand one thing from another thing and it's really really too bad because when hashem gave the torah it's like when he said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth he was talking about balance he was talking about something being justifiable so not things not being out of proportion the punishment or the crime or the crime comparative punishment that it had to be in order and again one thing we have to realize is like when we were talking about the rebellious son the the Torah is the laws of the Torah are also like a prescription what does our soul need if we are sick in this way like when our bodies are sick and we need a certain prescription to set our bodies back bring our bodies back into balance well the Torah is a prescription for our souls if our, if we have committed certain sins our souls are sick from that sin and we need a certain prescription and the Torah comes with that prescription whether it is and then you take this sacrifice to the temple or whether it is and then you pay back your neighbor or whether it is and you give your life in this way that's the prescription for your soul and we have to understand something a lot of times when we read these things especially about capital crimes we think in terms only of this world and the torah gives us a prescription in the, to be carried out in this world For the sake of our souls in the world to come. So that it's paid. And that's what this is talking about. So, essentially, with the story of the ten martyrs, the brothers had committed a crime. Now, even though Joseph said he did not hold it against them, he forgave them, they had still committed a crime that the Torah prescription even though it was before the giving of the Torah that the Torah prescription for that crime was a capital punishment so for the brothers the ten martyrs laid down their lives and they believed and it comes down to us through our tradition that they were doing this for the sake of the souls of the forefathers of these tribes tribal forefathers take heed concerning leprous marks to observe and carry out with exceeding care in accordance with everything the priests the Levites teach you as I commanded them so shall you carry it out with care remember what God your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out from Mitzrayim So he's saying, you know, understand that this is a punishment for Lashon hara. When you must assert to your neighbor your claim to a debt he owes you, you shall not go into his house to seize his security. You shall stand outside and the man on whom you have a claim shall bring the security outside to you and if he is a poor man you shall not go to sleep with his security in other words if you were to have his cloak and he needed that to keep warm you had to give it to him you must always return the security to him at sundown so he may go to sleep in his garment and bless you and this will stand for you as an act of righteous duty before God your God do not withhold anything from a day laborer who is poor and needy whether he be of your brethren or of the stranger that lives in your land within your gates. On his day you shall give him his wage and do not let the sun go down upon it because he is poor and he sets his soul upon it. Let him not cry out to God against you so that sin will cling to you. This is a very important mitzvah. I mean, a lot of times in Israel they will have day laborers and it's a very important mitzvah that they're that we're very meticulous about paying them when the day is finished. Fathers shall not be put to death on account of sons, and sons shall not be put to death on account of fathers. Every man shall be put to death only for his own sins. You shall not twist the justice due to an orphaned stranger, and you shall not take a widow's garment as security. And that means even if she is wealthy. Whether she's poor, or whether she's wealthy, you are not supposed to take her garment as security. You shall remember that you were slave in this rhyme when God your God delivered you from there. Therefore, do I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in the field, and when you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to take it. It shall be for the stranger, the orphan, the widow, so that God your God will bless you in all the work of your hands when you beat your olive tree you shall not break off the crown that you have left behind it shall be for the stranger the orphan and the widow when you gather the grapes of your vineyard you shall not pick the unripe grapes that you have left behind it shall be for the stranger, the orphan, the widow remember that you were a slave in the land of Mithraim therefore do I command you to do this so in the laws of agriculture, that we, the people were commanded to keep in mind the poor, and the poor were supposed to be able to come and glean these things from the fields. If there is a dispute between men, and they come before the court so that they should judge them, then it shall, then they must justify the righteous and condemn the guilty but if the guilty party has incurred corporal punishment the judge shall cause him to lie down and have him beaten in his presence according to his offense with a fixed number he shall not go on to give him 40 lashes were he to go on and give him a blow in excess of this your brother would be degraded before your eyes now there were people who would determine how many lashes the person could endure and the um, the lashes had to be divisible by three. So it would be not 40 lashes it would be 39. If it were, if however many the people decided that the person could endure, they would if, if it wasn't divisible by three it would be a lower number. and if the person were to, have some kind of a uh, trauma during the lashing physical trauma the lashing was supposed to immediately stop so there were all these laws in place that were you see that that you have this about the poor and taking care of the poor and not taking advantage of the poor and then right after that talking about corporal punishment and being sensitive that you don't overdo it you're not supposed to beat a person to death it was it it was permitted to give lashes you know now in the west we think this is cruel and it's abusive it was permitted to give lashes but you could not beat a person to death it had to be like I said before imbalanced you shall not muzzle an ox when it tre- is treading grain. So, and this goes also for if a person is working in the in the working for you, and you're like having him cook or something, then he wants to take a taste. You're not supposed to say no, we can't. The same kind of thing. When brothers are on the earth at the same time, and one of them dies and has no child. The wife of the dead man must not marry outside to a strange man. Her brother-in-law shall come to her and perform the duty of levirate marriage with her. And this is a law that only concerns Israel. And he shall be, and he shall be the firstborn whom she bears. He shall succeed in the name of his dead brother, and so the name of the latter will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not want to take his sister-in-law, his sister-in-law shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My brother-in-law refuses to raise up for his brother a name in Israel. He does not want to perform the duty of levirate marriage with me. And the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he then stands up and says, I do not wish want to take her, then his sister-in-law shall approach him before the eyes of the elders, take off his shoe from his foot and spit before his face, and then she shall begin to and say so shall it be done to the man who does not want to build his brother's house his name shall be called in Israel the house of him whose shoe was removed so the uh this is what happens in, today we do not have levirate marriage now and the reason we don't have levirate marriage now is because the the sages have, have decided that they're not sure that the people of Israel are on a high enough level to be certain of the um of the motives that the motives are pure enough to have Leverite marriage and so we do not have Leverite marriage in our society now so we have this um, just like it's, like it's explained here where the the sister-in-law comes and takes off his shoe. This is a required ritual that has to happen in front of a bait dune because and because it's not permitted for her to marry him. If men fight together one with the other and the wife the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of one who strikes him and she puts out her hand and grips his private parts you shall cut off her hand you shall have no pity you shall not have in your bag two different stone weights one large and one small you shall not have in your house two different measures one large and one small you shall have perfect stone weights and just one perfect measure and just one on this account your day shall be long and endure upon the soil that God your God is giving you for an abomination to God your God is anyone who does such things anyone who does wrong so including um, sexual deviance also cheating people with false weights and measures is called abomination the, a person who does that a person who was a cheat like that is called an abomination remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you went from this how he fell upon you on the way and massacred your stragglers all those who trailed after you when you were faint and spent and did not fear God and he did not fear God therefore it shall be when God your God will have given you rest from all your enemies around about in the land that God your God is giving you as an inheritance to take possession of it you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven do not forget this so this is the way that the Torah Parsha ends is the thing about Amalek And what was so wrong, what was so bad about Amalek that he did not fear God. All of the other nations had heard about the, the splitting of the sea, about the, what had, all the miracles, about the plagues, everything that Hashem had done. And all the other nations were afraid until Amalek came and attacked Israel. And it wasn't, and, and here's the thing, it wasn't because of wanting to take the land of Israel because the people of Israel weren't even to the land of Israel yet so it couldn't have been that it was purely an attack on the people out of complete hatred for the people of Israel they weren't trying to take land they were just trying to destroy the people of Israel and this is something that really can define the spirit of Amalek it's this hatred of the people of Israel. Yes, it does. Actually, I was watching a show on um, on one of the educational channels today about uh, terror in the world, and it just kind of. Every time I watch one of these shows, I just shake my head because it started out with the Palestinians, and of course, they always show all of these. Funerals and everything with the women crying and the martyrs and everything that they talk about and it has this pro-Palestinian you know, sympathy for them sound to it until they show the smoking towers of the World Trade Center then the tone changes they show the um, Muslims attacking tourists in Egypt the tone changes, then all of a sudden they're they're showing them them for what they are. And I always wonder about that. you know why is it that the Palestinians can elicit such sympathy from the people at large and um and yet it's the same thing I mean this Muslim terrorism it's the same thing that was an attack on the World Trade Center. It's the same thing that we're was killing tourists in Egypt for what? For no reason other than <sighs> I, I don't know. I don't. I don't even know why why they were doing it. I never even heard a reason why they were attacking tourists in Egypt. But it just amazes me. And sometimes it's like there's this this destruction for the sake of destruction, killing for the sake of killing. You know and that is like Amalek it's just like senseless the hatred just thrives and that's that spirit of Amalek it's so contrary to the Torah it's so contrary because you have all of these mitzvot that talk about relationships between people relationships of within the home relationships between neighbors, relationships, you know, even with the stranger and so on, of always caring, caring for the poor and so on. And then the Parsha ends with, remember what Amalek did to you, because Amalek, in attacking the people like that and being so sinister, is exactly, his behavior is exactly, in a nutshell, opposite of everything that has been said before. Everything that has come before. Of being kind to animals. So sensitive to their plight. Of caring about uh, repaying your debt. About caring about the widow and the orphan. About preserving life. About preventing accidents. All of these things that Hashem outlines so carefully in Ketitze. And then he ends with, remember what Amalek did to you. Because Amalek is in a nutshell personified totally opposite of everything that has come before all the kindness that Hashem wants to see in us is personifying His will in the world and what Amalek did it was a rebellion against Hashem's will in the world and so it's this spirit that is this rebellion against Hashem's will in the world that is called Amalek and he says, wipe that out that's why I think it's at the end of this Parsha again, it's reiterated here wipe that out because it is the opposite of what I consider justice in the world does anyone have a, any questions? Okay, thank you. I um, got my room painted yesterday, which I—I I think I mentioned maybe I was going to do it. I finished doing that yesterday. I was afraid I wasn't going to be finished until today, but some somebody came over and helped me yesterday, and then my dad helped me put up the border that I put around the top, and it looks really nice, and it and it makes me feel a lot better to have this room <laughs> fixed. So, I'm very, very tired and I'm really sore from all the work, but um, I'm feeling good about it. And we're going to be having a good week. So, I hope everybody had a good weekend and you're looking forward to the rest of the week too. So, thank you very much for joining me.